Hear the word of God as he talks to Abram in Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land that I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through that land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. The Canaanites were then in the land, but the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I'll give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Thank you, Vern. Well, Happy New Year. Can you believe it? First Sunday of 2009. Going to have to get used to writing that, huh? Let's begin uh, with a word of prayer before we dig into the word together. Lord, as we do face a new year, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that we can be part of this body, that we can worship you together and that we can know your presence through one another. Thank you for all the ways in which you bless us, Lord, and one of the great blessings you give us is your word which gives us truth and understanding and transforms our minds so that we might be transformed and be more like you. Lord, use your word this morning. Open our hearts. We admit our hearts are often hard, but today open our hearts that our hearts might be soft, that you might penetrate by your spirit and teach us so we might understand more fully how to live as a blessing to others in this world that desperately needs to know you. We pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. In 1976, Air France Flight 139, headed for Paris, France, from Tel Aviv in Israel, was hijacked by eight terrorists, Palestinian background, supporting the Palestinian cause, with 260 crew and passengers aboard. That plane was directed to a place called Entebbe Airport in Uganda. They were kept there for a number of days. Some were let go. All but 80-some Israelis were kept as prisoners. And they were being held for negotiations. But it was a very difficult time. What would happen to these who had flown and these passengers and these crew members? Well, at that point, the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, began to plan a dramatic rescue. 
they began to plan a way to free these 80-plus hostages that were kept in Uganda under the control of the dictator Idi Amin. They decided to put their plan in action. It was a very dramatic and intriguing, amazing plan that they put together. They sent 100 IDF forces there into Uganda. They flew in at night in several big airplanes. They pretended to be Idi Amin as they had a Mercedes come through the gate and they worked their way in and they ended up through this dramatic rescue, rescuing everyone except four hostages who were killed. They killed all the terrorists. They defeated a force of the Ugandan army and they stole those people right out from under the hand of Idi Amin. And I really love stories of dramatic, amazing rescues like that. In Genesis chapter 12, what Vern just read to us, it's the story of God's plan to begin a rescue that's even more dramatic. God's plan to rescue humanity from essentially ourselves, our own fallenness. Let's set the context so we kind of know where we're going with this dramatic rescue plan that God puts in place beginning right here in Genesis chapter 12. This is a key passage to understanding really the whole Bible. So let's review where we are up to this point in Genesis. We took a couple of weeks off because of Advent and New Year's. We studied Mark last week, but for the next few weeks we'll be back in the book of Genesis. And we began a while back in Genesis chapter 1 as God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke, and each day was created. And as each day was made and God looked at it, He said, it is good. It is good. Creation was marvelous. It was wonderful. And the very high point of creation was the creation of man and woman. Created in God's image. Reflecting His glory. Amazing. Amazing. Beautiful. And God placed them in the Garden of Eden, a wonderful place where He walked with them. His presence was among them. But as we all know, in chapter 3 of Genesis, Adam and Eve rebelled. God said, enjoy everything that I've created for you, but just stay away from one tree. Don't eat of the fruit of one tree. And they did. (laughs) And at that point, sin and death entered the world. This virus penetrated the heart and every human being except Jesus himself who has been born since then, has been infected with this virus of sin and death, including every one of us sitting in this room. And as we went on in Genesis, we saw how that began to live its way out and God began to bring judgments upon mankind in those early years of creation. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Their own son, Cain, killed his brother, Abel. And he was judged and called to be a wanderer on the earth. Then we saw that mankind became more and more corrupt. And as God says, He says, every intent of man's heart is evil. Everything's tainted in what man does when he's left to himself. And so God decided He would judge all mankind except Noah and his family. And so in the flood... Every 
land, life died, except those that were on the ark with Noah and his three sons and their wives. So God took them through this amazing flood and everyone else died. But then it says shortly after that, you know what? Man's heart has not changed. Every intent of man's heart is still evil. (laughs) And so man began to build this tower, the Tower of Babel, to try to reach God and say, ha, if we work together, guys, we can be gods ourselves. Come, let's work together and we can reach heaven. And God came down and said, you guys don't get it, do you? And so he confused their languages and he scattered those early 70 nations over the earth as an act of judgment that they might not continue to rebel against him. So that's where we are when we get to chapter 12. Every intent of man's heart is evil, man going his own way. God has brought several judgments, but you know, things have not changed. So what would God do at this point? How would he deal with a sinful world that despite all his judgments still does not trust him, still continues to rebel and choose sin over God, still where every intent of his heart is evil, God says. Well, God, at this point, begins in chapter 12 of Genesis, an amazing rescue plan. A rescue plan that he begins there with one man, and it continues right through to the present day, to the end of the ages. So as we look today, we begin to see a picture of God's big plan for reaching humankind, for dealing with this virus that's in the heart of every one of us. You see, judgment didn't work. So God needs to bring about an inner transformation of humankind if we're ever going to be set free. And he begins it right here in Genesis chapter 12. So what is God's rescue plan? We want to look at that together. It begins, I want to set the context for you because at this point we, for the first time, meet Abram. Abram who... His name means exalted father, but later God changes his name to Abraham. In our passage, it's Abram, but later God changes his name to Abraham, father of nations. And we get to know him first in verse 27 of chapter 11. These are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot, etc., Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves, verse 29. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, etc. Verse 30. Sarai, we learn, was barren. She had no child. So here's Abram, named exalted father, and yet he can't even become a father without the intervention of God. How painful that must have been for him to live life with a name that was, in essence, a picture of God's judgment on him. He couldn't have children. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the daughter of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. So Terah, the father of Abraham, then passes away. 
But let me just give you the picture as we begin to see how God begins to work in Abram's life. They were from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is today in southern Iraq, near Kuwait, that part that's of the world that's been in the news in recent years as the U.S. invaded, etc. There's In that area is where uh, Abram came from. He was a Semite. Now you remember, we talked about the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the descendants of Shem are called Semites. Shem, Semites. And so that's where a number of them settled, there in what is today Iraq. And it says that Terah decided to take his family and move, and they were headed for the land of Canaan. He, I guess, heard something good about it, but he never made it. He only made it about halfway. And he ended up in northern Iraq, near the Kurdish area of today, near the border of Turkey. And that's where they settled there. But, you know, Abram was just a normal guy, like you and me. But here's God's plan. God begins His plan by calling a person. God's rescue plan begins to change the world, to impact our hearts, to change the intents of our hearts, begins by simply calling a person. An everyday person. (laughs) Nothing special about Him. But He says, I want you. And He says this, In verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, God shows up to him. We don't know how he spoke. If he sent him an email or text message or (laughs) spoke verbally to him, we're not told. Apparently that's not important. But he says to him, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you. So he speaks to him and he utters a command to him. One command, he says, go. Go forth. Go out. And what does he tell him to do? He says, go forth from your nation, your country, the the people that you're familiar with, where you find your security. Leave your country, he says. And he says, leave your tribe, your relatives. Go away from them. Leave them as well. And in fact... He says, leave your immediate family. Leave your father's house. Go away from all of those. So God calls him, calls a person, but notice he calls him to leave what has been his security, his comfort for all his life. He has to leave behind the things he's trusted in to feel secure in his life. Isn't that the way God works in our lives? For all of us, when He calls us, He calls us and He speaks into our lives and says, hey, I want to begin working in your life. I want you to go, and I want you to go from the things you've depended on. And if you've walked with God very long, you know this is true. He begins to strip you of those things that you have clung to for security and life. And he begins to strip those away so that we will go with him. So we will learn to depend on him and on him alone. It's not an easy process. It couldn't have been easy for Abram to leave everything he knew that was familiar to him. But God takes that away, strips that away. And God calls us to do the same, to leave behind 
what we depend on either externally or even internally to turn from those and to learn to trust him. Now, this is definitely true, obviously true of missionaries, right? We have, we have a wonderful missions program here at Cole. I love the fact we are committed to reaching the world for Jesus Christ. And we have four field staff plus a bunch of missionaries, but I just want to highlight our field staff. They are considered staff at Cole. All their support runs through the church at Cole. They are considered field staff. We have the Armstrongs, Nick and Laura, who are in Indonesia serving in that Muslim world. They've left everything secure, their families. They've literally followed what Abram said, and they've gone there to seek to share the gospel with those people. We have the Browns who are working in the Muslim world, training leaders, working all over the Muslim world, seeking to share the gospel of Christ and train others to do that. We have as well the Ivans who have been in China, who now are in this local area working for MAF, but they have been in China and Nicholas goes regularly, travels around the world to train people in the truth and the gospel and the scriptures and how to understand them. And we also have the Mannings who are in the Middle East who are there working with Muslims there seeking to share the gospel with them. You see, sometimes God calls us to literally leave like Abram did and leave behind our security. But some of us, he calls us to maybe stay physically in the same place, but he calls every one of us to leave behind, to let go of the things that we depend on for security. Jeannie and I both grew up in homes where we'd lived there virtually our whole lives growing up, never moved. I moved when I was three to the home that my parents lived in for 40 plus years and she lived always in the same home growing up and that's all we knew and then we got married and first 13 years of marriage we had 10 major moves. We lived in five different states. God took us all over and we're kind of going, God, what are you doing here? But you know, God was always with us. He was always faithful. We didn't know what we were moving into, but God led us. He moved us. He took us where he wanted us. You may have stayed put. You may have stayed put all your life, but God is still working to call you out of your dependence on things in this world and into what he tells Abram. He says, Go from your relatives, your father's house, your country, to what? The land I will show you. (laughs) To the land I will show you. Uh, If I was Abram, I would think I would have been going, well, just, uh, you know, can I have some of those glossy brochures about where I'm going? Um, you know, show me an internet site where I can figure out, you know, what I'm getting into so I know what to pack. Uh, you know, at least give me an itinerary of the places we'll be staying along the way. I want to know, you know, how nice the hotels are or whatever. And yet, Abram doesn't get any of that. We want to plan our lives and our itinerary and what's ahead. We want to know what's ahead. And all he says is, Go where I will show you. In other words, all God promises is I will go with you. I'll be there and I'll make it clear when we get there. I'll show you where we're going. 
And we want to know what's coming, but you know what? God doesn't show us. We don't know what's coming in 2009. I sure don't. But here's what God promises. I will go with you. So depend on me. Why depend on circumstances and other things when those, who knows what will happen with those? But he says, depend on me because I will go with you. I will show you where you need to go. So our job then is to stay close to him, right? (laughs) And follow him and listen to his voice and go where he shows us. So God begins his great rescue plan, his amazing rescue plan, by calling a person, an ordinary person, by calling Abram, by calling you and me. (laughs) That's how he wants to change the world. By calling a person. And then secondly, what he determines and promises to do when he calls a person is to bless that person. To bless that person. Verse 2. And here's what I'll do. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so the result is you shall be a blessing. He says he promises to make him a great nation. He promises to give many descendants. Now, I'm sure Abraham had to be going, okay, you know, I'm like 75 here. Um, I'm beyond the age of childbearing. And Sarah, you know, she's getting old. And you're going to make, you're going to give me all these descendants? But God says, I promise I'll give you many descendants. I promise I will bless you. And I promise I will make your name great. I just want to talk about that phrase, make your name great. Do you remember when Rod taught on chapter 11, the Tower of Babel? Remember what the people were saying as they were rebelling against God? Verse 4 of chapter 11, they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. They wanted to become famous. And God said, you know what? No. (laughs) No. But he comes to Abraham and he says, you know what? I'm going to give you a name. I promise to give you glory. I promise to bless your life in a powerful way. He promises to bless him. He promises to care for him. And, you know, as we hear this word blessing, I don't think we understand very well how significant that is to have God's blessing. Here's some words from the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. The writer says, Nothing in that world was more important than securing the blessing of God in one's life or nation. All religious or superstitious peoples, in other words, virtually the entire ancient world, along with most of the world today, have actively sought the blessing of a specific deity or spirit believing that this blessing will make them fertile, prosper them, protect them, deliver them, heal them, preserve them, empower them, exalt them, favor them, or possibly bring about all of the above. A blessed life was the ideal. A life without God's blessing was a nightmare. Real success in life was impossible without this coveted blessing. And he ends with this, where modern man talks about success, Old Testament man talked about blessing. 
You know, we love to talk about success. That's what we want in life. That's what we, but really what we're talking about is blessing. We want God's favor, right? Isn't that ultimately what we want? We want God's favor. And if you're like me, many of us come to Christ and we think, wow, what do I need to do now to get God's favor? To be on his good side. And we try to figure it out and we work hard to try to make it happen. And yet, notice God's plan. He calls Abram, and then he says, I will bless you. <laughs> no conditions, no, you know, no other things attached, no other things that he has to do. He says, I will bless you. Isn't that wonderful? Do you see what that means? We don't have to earn his blessing. We don't have to somehow do the right thing so we have his blessing. Abram certainly didn't. But that's God's plan. He chooses, he calls us, and then he says, I will bless you. (laughs) I will bless you. So he tells Abram, essentially, you're not going to have to figure out how many things you need to do or how many sacrifices or whatever to get on my good side. I'm just going to choose to give you my blessing, to give you my life. And essentially in scriptures, that's what blessing is. The blessing of God is essentially not so much material things. The blessing of God is his presence in your life, his favor, so that whatever you face in life, you have God. You have his resources. You have his life. And that is the ultimate blessing. That's what we all need. That's ultimately what we long for. So God's plan is to bless us when we trust him. To give us his presence and to go with us wherever we go. Isn't that marvelous? We don't have to earn it. We don't have to make it happen. We just get to receive it. So God's plan begins with calling Ordinary people like you and me. Begins with calling Abram. Then he promises to bless, give us his presence, go with us. He'll show us life. He'll lead us along the way, every step of the way. He doesn't help us see way ahead. He just goes with us. And then third, God's rescue plan is this. God blesses others through us. God calls a person, blesses that person, and then blesses others through that person. That's God's rescue plan. That's how he wants to change the world. That's how he wants to change hearts. Notice the end of verse 2. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families, the tribes, the peoples of the earth will be blessed. So God says, you know what? Here's what I want to do now, Abram. I'm going to bless you and I want to make you a blessing to the entire world. In fact, through you, all the tribes, the families of the world are going to be blessed. And he says, you and your descendants, those who bless you, I will bless. But those who curse you will be cursed. As my people... The destiny of every other person on earth will depend on how they treat you. Isn't that interesting? 
And it's just interesting to me that as you think about the history of the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, how they have been persecuted throughout history, but it's those nations that have blessed them that have been most blessed. It's those that have cursed them that have been most cursed. Interesting. Maybe God's promises are true. <laughs> it's also interesting to me. I'm not sure what to do with this. I'll throw it out. You can, you know, do with it what you want. But it strikes me that the three major religions of the world today, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all honor Abraham, all honor his name as their forebears. Yeah, interesting. So God's great plan is that he chooses a person, he blesses that person, and he says, I want you to become a blessing to others. Now, I think this is a key to the Christian life for every one of us. Simple but true, I think it's a key that we need all to begin to grasp. God has called you. He's called you to be part of his kingdom, part of his family. And then he has blessed you with the Holy Spirit, with his very life, with his presence, and he's promised to take care of you. Maybe not according to your agenda, but he takes care of you as you need it. And he provides for you and he blesses you, not so you can sit back and just enjoy the blessings and wait for him to return someday. No. He's blessing you so that you can be a blessing to others. So that your life can be a conduit of His blessings poured out to the world around us that is dying and is struggling and is infected with this virus of sin and death. Your life is meant to be a blessing to others. And you say, well, I don't have anything to offer. If you have Jesus in you, you have everything you need to be a tremendous blessing to the world around you. <laughs> you don't need anything else. God has blessed you so that you can be a blessing to others. It's not just for you to enjoy. Do enjoy it, but pass it on. Pass it on. You know, the church throughout history has had a very mixed uh, response to this. We haven't always done such a good job <laughs> of being a blessing, have we? I just want to get, read a couple examples to you of Christians in our world today. First a negative, then a positive example, so that we can think a little bit more clearly about this. Am I a blessing in my world? Am I a blessing to those around me? There's a book called Nickel and Dimed. Interesting book about a woman who was a journalist, a writer, decided to see what it was like to live in America at minimum wage jobs to see if you could really survive, knowing that a lot of people are trying to. And she did a number of different jobs. She ended up having to work two jobs at a time. It's just an interesting story. But at one point, she became a waitress. And here's what she says about what it was like dealing with people. And she mentions different kinds of people and what they were like when they came in and how they treated her as a waitress. Listen to what she says. The worst for some reason, are the visible Christians. Like the ten-person table, 
all jolly and sanctified after Sunday night service, who run me mercilessly and then leave me one dollar on a $92 bill. Or the guy in the crucifixion t-shirt that says, someone to look up to, who complains that his baked potato is too hard and his iced tea too icy, I cheerfully fix both and then leaves no tip at all. As a general rule, people wearing crosses or WWJD, what would Jesus do, buttons, look at us disapprovingly, look at waitresses disapprovingly, no matter what we do, as if they were confusing waitressing with Mary Magdalene's original profession. What a sad statement. In your world, in the people you come in contact with, are you a blessing? Are you a reflection of Jesus Christ? A positive example. Enough of that conviction stuff, right? This is an article my son forwarded to me. It's from the Times. And it's written by a man named Matthew Paris. And he writes this. He works in Africa, writes a lot about Africa, grew up part of his life in Africa. And he says this. This is the heading. As an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. As an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. That's an interesting headline, isn't it? (laughs) He says this, Now a confirmed atheist, I become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, non-governmental organizations, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa... Christianity changes people's hearts. Now, this is from an atheist. (laughs) But he's observed enough to say, wow, whatever those Christians do, it changes people's hearts for the good. And he says, that's what is needed to fix Africa and the problems they're having today. Isn't that fabulous? You see, there are some Christians there that are being a blessing in a culture that's struggling He goes on to say, in Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. (laughs) And he talks about whenever they went where missionaries were, it changes the faces of the people. Something in their eyes, the way they approach you, direct, man to man, without looking down or away. They hadn't become more deferential towards strangers, in some ways less so, but more open. He's just trying to describe in his own words the presence of Christ in these people in Africa whose lives are being changed because of a spiritual rebirth. And here's a man, himself resistant of God, and yet he can see the blessing that the Christians are in African culture. God chooses us and blesses us so that we can be a blessing to other people so that other people can be rescued from this virus that has crushed their lives in this broken and fallen and hurting world. Are you and I a blessing?
Great question. Great question. I want to highlight the sequence here. I want to highlight something. And I want you to notice how this passage works. It works from God reaching to Abraham, calling Abraham. And he says, I will make you a great nation. And then he says, in you, all the families of the earth, of the world, will be blessed. Now, here's where this is God's big rescue plan, because this is really a summary of the entire scriptures, of God's entire plan over history. He reaches to Abraham, he reaches one man, and he teaches him faith, teaches him to walk with him. And the book of Genesis is about Abraham and his, and his family, his immediate family, Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, etc., and then the rest of the Bible is God, of the Old Testament is God working with Abraham's descendants as a nation, seeking to make them a blessing to the world. But of course, it didn't go very well, did it? But all the time, God was pointing to one of Abraham's descendants, Jesus Christ, who would come, a Semite, <laughs> who would come so that the gospel could go forth to all nations. And so the New Testament is a picture of how God began to move out to reach all the known world with the gospel, to rescue the entire world, to set people free. And so you get passages like the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus, right before he ascends, says this, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. Sound familiar? What did he tell Abraham? Go. Now Jesus tells his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always. I will bless you with my presence even to the end of the age. Isn't Jesus just essentially repeating the promises of Genesis 12? I think he is. And now he's commanding them to the disciples and ultimately to us. I mean, you may be sitting there thinking, well, that's great promise to Abraham and his people, but what about us? How do these promises apply to us? Well, in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that these promises apply directly to us. Chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 13 and 14, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. It is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Get verse 14 now. Listen carefully. In order that Christ redeemed us, blessed us, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Who's that? It's us, folks. It's you and me so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So Paul says, you know what? Those promises made to Abraham, they now apply to us. God says, I called you. I will bless you. I will go with you. And if you'll follow me, I will make you a blessing. So be a blessing, he says. Be a blessing wherever you are. Let my presence be lived out through you. So how does Abram respond to all this, this great plan? Well, as uh, Vern read, I won't take time to read verses 4 through 9. You can read through it again. But it says, Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. And he went forth and he headed out into 
where he didn't know, but God took him. He followed God and God led him into the land of Canaan. And it says he was surrounded by Canaanites. But God said, I'll give you this land to your seed, to your descendants. And so Abram's response was that he built an altar to God in the northern part of the land. And then he worked through a little further south and he built another altar to God. And then he went all the way to the end. He worked his way all through the land and essentially claimed it for God. So how does God, how does Abram respond? Really two major ways. God said, go. And he obeyed. And secondly, he worshiped. That's the kind of person that God can use in his wonderful rescue plan. He's looking for people that when he calls us that we are willing to obey. We, none of us obey perfectly, but if we, are we willing to follow, to obey? And are we willing to worship him wherever he takes us? No matter what he takes us through in 2009, are we willing to obey Are we willing to worship him because he has promised to bless us? This Friday we had a memorial service in this room. We said goodbye to an old friend, Joe John Kirkpatrick. Joe John had quite a story. He had a pretty rough background, pretty rough life. And he knew he made a lot of terrible mistakes. But at age 31, he committed his life to Christ and God began to change him and transform him. And our service as we met together was a celebration of how God had blessed others, us, through Joe John's life. You see, God calls us in our brokenness, in our messed upness. (laughs) And he calls us and he says, I'll bless you so you can be a blessing. That's his plan for every one of us. God's plan hasn't changed. It began with Abraham. It's continuing today as God calls you. He says, come, go, follow me. From the things you've depended on, trust me, and I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing far beyond what you've ever seen or understood before. I want to read a a verse in Ephesians that I think really gives us a picture of what God's called us to. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. That's God's blessing. By grace you're saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We can't earn it. We can't earn God's favor. We just have to receive it as a gift. But here's God's plan for that. For we are his workmanship, his craftsmanship, literally his poema, his poetry, his artwork. You are God's work of art, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Same plan, right? God gives us grace as a gift. When we receive it, we don't earn it. We can't earn it. But as we receive it, God says, now I want you to be a blessing. I've prepared good works for you to walk in. Stay close to me and I will make you a blessing to many, many lives. 
beyond what you even know because I've created you just as I want you. You are my craftsmanship. You are my work of art meant to display my life through you. That's God's plan for changing the world. He's called you. He wants to bless you so you might be a blessing to others. What a beautiful picture, huh? And one of the things that we read, one of the passages, Matthew 28, it says that he wants us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, we're going to have a baptism now. We're going to celebrate with a couple of families, a couple of uh, young people that have committed their lives to Christ who have said, I want to go with you, Jesus. I want to walk with you. I want you to make my life a blessing to others. So let me pray as the children are coming in and then we'll get to celebrate this baptism together. Lord, thank you so much for your grace the blessings that are a gift, not because we've earned them, but simply because you want to use us as part of your rescue plan to bless this broken and hurting world. Lord, give us hearts to respond to you. Help us see your blessings and pass them on to those in our worlds. Make us a blessing, we pray, in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.